Rub-a-Dub-Dub and Done and Gets Things Smart. Those are the names of two essays I read way back in the day in the 2000s that influenced me a lot in my product management practice and thinking. Now, in this episode, I'm going to talk about how these two articles created new mental models for me, and maybe you will also find valuable to think about how to make your products more successful. Hi, this is Nels Davis, and you're listening to episode number 78 of All the Responsibility. For show notes, including links to the articles and sites I mentioned, check out alltheresponsibility.com slash 78. Well, back in the 2000s, there was a very influential blog in the software engineering world called Joel on Software, beautifully written by Joel Spolsky, who at the time ran a company called Fogbugs, and then was one of the founders of Stack Overflow. It ended up with over 1,100 great articles about software engineering, entrepreneurship, management, and strategy, among other things. Now, from all those articles, and I definitely read most of them, if not all, the one that made the biggest impression on me was called Rub-A-Dub-Dub. It was about the folly, which the old Netscape company was going through at the time, of rewriting the code base of their web browser and other web tools. He'd written several times about this, about the dangers of refactoring what was called refactoring, but what was really rewriting applications in a new system, a new framework, something like that. Rub-a-dub-dub, the article, was about the right way to refactor. So over multiple releases, his product, which at the time was Fogbugs, had gotten kind of crufty, and he wanted to clean it up to refactor the code, but not in the way that Netscape was trying to do it and failing at, which was to essentially rewrite the whole thing. So his approach, which was based on very simple rules, was to go through the application carefully, line by line, literally, and function by function, leaving the functionality exactly the same, but cleaning up the actual code. Basically, take what's working and refactor it to make it more resilient, robust, safe, etc., using only what you might call mechanical transformations. Now, the article is a very fun read because Joel did the work himself, supposedly over roughly three weeks. It's a great story. There's a link to it in the show notes. The rules that he used were he didn't create any new features, not even small ones, during this process. He also made sure that at any time, with any check-in, the code would still work perfectly. It would pass all of its tests. It would do all the functional things that it was supposed to do. It hadn't changed, and it hadn't broken. And all he did was logical transformations, the kinds of things that are almost mechanical and which you can convince yourself immediately will not change the behavior of the code. For example, he would do things like make sure the variables were named correctly, or he would make sure that all the functions were declared correctly in the way that was correct for the syntax and things like that. There are a lot of other things he talks about from the standpoint of the good software engineering practice that he essentially put into the code. Now, the point of rub-a-dub-dub is that you're starting from something that works but that has sanitary problems, dirty code, etc., and you're cleaning it up, but otherwise you're not changing it. Now, this was a very influential article to me. Now, Joel also has another concept. This time it was about hiring developers for his team. In fact, he used the phrase as the title of his book. It was smart and gets things done. His goal in hiring was to find people who are smart and get things done, which sounds great, and Joel was very successful, so it's clearly not a bad rubric. The original article, by the way, was called The Guerrilla Guide to Hiring, and he says, how do you know whether to hire someone? In principle, it's simple. You're looking for people who are smart and get things done. That's it. That's all you're looking for. Memorize that. Recite it to yourself before you go to bed every night. So then you might ask, why is this the rule? 
Well, the rule is smart and gets things done because, first of all, people who are smart but don't get things done often have PhDs and work in big companies where nobody listens to them because they're completely impractical. They would rather mull over something academic about a problem rather than ship on time. And he says the reason you need somebody, people who can get things done is people who get things done but are not smart will do stupid things. And he says the reason you need smart and get things done is because people who get things done but are not smart will do stupid things seemingly without thinking about them and somebody else will have to come clean up their mess later. This makes them net liabilities to the company because not only do they fail to contribute, but they soak up good people's time. So, again, a link to this article in the show notes, but this article really engendered the one that I want to talk about and that I found was just the guy who wrote it. He's a delightful writer. He doesn't write that much. He still does a little bit still, but this was back when he was writing a little bit more. Steve Yegi, he was an engineer at Amazon at the time, and he wrote an amazing article called Done and Gets Things Smart about another rubric for hiring, a nearly impossible rubric to actually hire for, but one that has a great application to actual products, which I'll get to in a little while. In other words, his model is about trying to hire people that have a certain set of characteristics, but actually if we make our products have those characteristics, it makes them potentially really successful. And the ones, those are typically the ones that change everything. So a link to that article, which I'll talk about in a minute, also in the show notes. So Yege says about Joel on software's rubric, he says, people quote Joel's proverb all the time because it gives us all such a nice snuggly feeling. Why? Because to be in this industry at all, even a bottom feeder, you have to be smart. You were probably the top kid in your elementary school class. People probably picked on you. You were the geek back when geeks weren't popular but now smart is fashionable. And he's mostly referring, of course, to developers. But this also applies to us product managers, I would say. Now, Yegi goes on to say that due to the Dunning-Kruger effect, it's darn hard to recognize people who are smarter than you. And it's hard to find out in the interview process if they can actually get things done. And as a result, the smart and gets things done rubric tends, at best, to guide you to hire people who are much like you. This is, of course, Steve Yegi's conclusion. But he challenges us with this thought experiment. So this is a long passage that I'm going to quote. Let me ask you a brutally honest question. Since you began interviewing, how many of the engineers you voted thumbs up on, i.e. hire, are engineers you'd personally hire to work with you in your first startup company? I posit that most of you, willing to admit it or not, have a lower bar for your current company than you would for your own personal startup. The people you'd want to be in your startup are not of the smart and gets things done variety, for your startup, you don't want someone who's smart. You're not looking for eager to learn, pick things up quickly, proven track record of ramping up fast. You want someone who's superhumanly godlike, someone who can teach you a bunch of stuff, someone you admire and wish you could emulate, not someone who you think will admire and emulate you. You want someone who, when you give them a project to research, will come in on Monday and say, I'm done, and by the way, I improved the existing infrastructure while I was at it. Someone who always seems to be finishing stuff so fast that it makes your head spin. That's what my done clause means. It means they're frigging done all the time. So Yegi's point is that there are programmers who, when you give them an assignment to research something, they've already done the thing you're asking for, or they do it instantly because they're so insanely intuitive and productive and have such good systems. But as a side effect, or maybe even in addition, they've also fixed other systems so that they work more smoothly, interact better, are easier to maintain or use, and so on. In other words, 
They made the system smarter as a side effect, hence his phrase, done and gets things smart. Now, Yegi argues that you really want some people like this on your team because they have transformational powers. But he also notes that they're nearly impossible to hire because, first of all, they know their worth. And secondly, and perhaps more importantly, their current employers know their worth and aren't about to let them go. And if you've ever heard about Jeff Dean at Google, he was this kind of person. And Yegi lists out several other examples of this type of person that he's worked with or experienced the outcomes of during his career. You might want to check the show notes for a sidebar about Jeff Dean, because Jeff Dean, there's a bunch of jokes about Jeff Dean that are pretty funny. They're kind of based on the well-known Chuck Norris types of jokes. And I'll put a link in the show notes to some of these pages and a little bit more information about that. I think they're hilarious. The thing about the Jeff Dean facts, which I'm not going to list any of right today, you kind of get this idea about the reputation of Jeff Dean as a programmer. And this is the kind of person that Steve Yeggy was talking about in Done and Gets Things Smart. So you might be asking, well, how do these ideas, which were originally presented kind of as guides to hiring and also how to refactor successfully in Rub-A-Dub-Dub, how do they apply to software products? Well, in the rest of this episode, we're going to move from ancient history back in the 2000s, of all things, to how to apply these two different ideas, Rub-A-Dub-Dub and Done and Gets Things Smart, to building applications or products. Now, the reality is that done and gets things smart is really how we want our customers to feel about our products, at least most of us. That is, I'm going to take this idea from Steve Yeggy and I'm going to apply it to the thing we're building and our customers' experience of it. Most brilliant and delightful software is done and gets things smart. Not only has it already done the heavy lifting, it's also organized things in a way that you never thought of that's brilliant that will make your life better. So, some examples of this. Well, Instagram, of course. I love using Instagram as an example because it's so good for things. Gmail is kind of like this. Many softwares that learn from you. Nest Thermostats is another great example. Rub-a-dub-dub, keeping the functionality the same but making it faster, more convenient, nicer looking, is the basis for a few highly successful products as well. So let me run through a few examples of both of these. And I think the canonical Rub-a-dub-dub example is another example that I've used in the podcast before. If you're a longtime listener, you know that I use this product as an example a lot. It's the exception kind of that proves the rule, or in fact, that shows that a lot of the rules that we think we know about product management and about product success that we don't really know. And of course, that's Craigslist. Craigslist is nothing more than refactored classified ads from the old days when newspapers were an actual money-making business because of classified ads. And of course, they were printed on paper. You may be saying, well, is refactoring something that was on paper into the computer really refactoring? Stick with me. I think you'll see the argument. It's very different from what some other applications have done, which I'll talk about in a little bit. Craigslist didn't really change anything about classified ads except the container. In other words, they were on paper, and now they're in a, in a more flexible, more powerful, more open, more transparent system so to speak. It didn't come up with a new flow for making classified ads. It's exactly the same flow you'd use if you were calling up a newspaper to place an ad or a new structure for the ads. They still look the same. Basically, you can put a little bit more information in them, but that's partly because they're in the new container. They remain locale-based, which was one of the features of classified ads. And it turns out that since we're talking about newspapers and classified ads, many applications that replace legacy pre-digital things are much more rub-a-dub-dub then they are done and gets things smart. And another really good example of this is Photoshop. 
So to a large degree, especially early on when Photoshop first came out, 90% of Photoshop was taking well-known processes from legacy photography and photojournalism and importing them onto the computer. You get the same functionality, but it's much faster, much easier to use, much more scalable, requires less physical equipment, etc. And when I say much easier to use, I mean physically it's easier to do it. Photoshop had a huge learning curve, as you probably know, and still does. Physically, it was much easier to do the things on the computer than it was to do them with darkrooms and pa photo paper and photo lists and all that kind of stuff. Almost everything you could do in early Photoshop, at least in terms of image editing, was something you could do to photos on paper or in negative form or in photostat form in the darkroom or on a pasteboard or something like that. But instead of needing the darkroom and acids and things, you could just do it on the computer. This is not 100% true. There was probably 10% that was different, but mostly not used for much by real professionals. But most of what people used it for, it was the same things they did on paper and in the darkroom previously. The side effect, of course, is it was well known to be extremely difficult to use effectively. You have to really understand photo editing to be able to use it. You know, normal people would just make a mess of their pictures if they tried to use Photoshop, if they could even figure out how to get started. It was a tool for experts. It provided unmatched capabilities, but it didn't do anything for you. You had to be in control the whole time. Now, many photo apps of all different levels of difficulty, and I'm putting that in air quotes because they're all pretty much difficult to use, were like Photoshop. Traditional concepts and traditional tools like contrast adjustment, histograms, hue saturation and value tools, lots of dials and sliders, selection tools, making masks, etc. Again, all familiar concepts from legacy photography, but they were then basically translated onto the computer. And then Instagram came along. Instagram was totally different from Photoshop, especially when it first came out. It didn't have any of those dials, like for contrast and brightness. You couldn't select a region of a picture and do things with it. You couldn't create masks. What it had was pre-built filters that could take your normal snapshot and make it look really awesome. At least really awesome from the standpoint of a novice, non-professional. You didn't have to know anything about real photography to make a pretty cool looking picture from something you just shot on your phone. Now Instagram's changed over the 10 years it's been out, but that was how it started. Not at all tied to legacy photography, except insofar as your pictures kind of look like shots from the great legacy photographers. I would say that Instagram is an example of an application that comes from the done and gets things smart ethos. Now, I don't know if the makers of Instagram knew about Steve Yeggie's article, but you could imagine a conversation where someone asked, what does done look like from a user's perspective? Oh, a beautifully enhanced snapshot from their camera that they can easily share to their friends. And that's exactly what Instagram was. There was no dials, no knobs, no expertise required. It was just about being done. Take a snapshot, make it beautiful by applying a filter with no expertise required. And it also got things smart. This was about making it super easy to share it to your friends. And so a lot of people, when they look back at Instagram, they talk about the innovations around sharing, which definitely were true. But the innovations around how you actually edited your photo, that was pretty huge as well. Now, it turns out that in enterprise software, this can be a really powerful model to work with as well, done and gets things smart. So what does it mean to be done in the case of enterprise software? Well, I think you can interpret that in a lot of ways, and some examples I came up with quickly. Things like when given data, 
it gives you a useful and correct answer with no messing about in a form that's directly useful. Now, you may have to give it data in a form that it understands, although that's part of getting things smart as well, right? That it can figure out what to do with data, however form you give it. But then it gives you an answer that's useful that you don't have to, that's actually the right answer, right? Think about Google. You type a search query into Google, and on the first page is probably the answer to the question that you asked, no matter what you wrote there, because Google has figured out how to do that, right? Another smart, another done thing is that you don't have to do any configuration to make it understand your version of the problem. You also don't have to do customization to make sure it knows about your special variables or situations or conditions. And that used to be very common in enterprise software, and now it's much less common. And you didn't have to tell it how to do something. It just knew how to do it. What about the get things smart component? What does that look like in enterprise software? Well, it could mean an algorithm that is better than the one that you have been using already, meaning it's actually coming up with a better solution or better answer than you could have done before getting this product. You know, a lot of times enterprise software replaces spreadsheets that people have built, that companies have built that have accreted knowledge over time in some sense, but they're still spreadsheets and spreadsheets are limited by their nature in terms of the calculations. And in addition to being limited, maybe the people that wrote them, that designed these spreadsheets or put them together, made mistakes. I actually literally worked on an enterprise software product that had serious algorithm problems in it. It was always giving the wrong answer for a very important set of calculations that it did that we were being paid a lot of money for. When I went in and looked at the actual calculations, the, the algorithms, this was written before I got there and I went and did a review of it, I found that there were many, many errors in the data that we were putting out and charging a huge amount of money for. So that's very possible. Um, I mean, this was actually software that somebody had written, but of course, it was probably based on a spreadsheet when it was started. But the point is that get things smart may mean literally it's a better algorithm than the thing that you've been using. But it might also mean that in addition to giving you the right answer, it also makes it easier to, for you to collect the data it uses or even collects the data on its own. And in fact, most successful enterprise software products align to some degree with this idea of done and gets things smart. So I'll give you an example. Salesforce.com. It's a good example. We all kind of understand how it works. But what is the, think about the fundamental, most important job of a CRM. CRM, Customer Relationship Management Software, meaning sales automation software, right? And that's what Salesforce does. And really the most fundamental, important job, the one that gets somebody to write a check for you, is to give management an insight into how sales are going. An accurate, as accurate as possible, sales forecast, right? That's really why the execs are willing to spend money on it. There's a lot of other benefits, in particular to individual salespeople if they use it, but if it didn't result in an accurate sales forecast, those other benefits would just be who cares to the person writing the checks. So how does Salesforce make the sales forecast done? Well, obviously, and this isn't brain surgery really, it has a built-in sales forecast report. If the sales team puts their data into the system, a sales forecast will come out. And of course, there are all kinds of other kinds of reports as well. Now compare that to a system that was not done. It gives you a place to put the sales team's data, but you are expected to then download that data and create the same sales forecast report yourself. And actually lots of low-end customer account management tools are like that. So the sales forecast you have to create yourself in Excel or whatever. So the sales forecast, the most important thing from the standpoint of the people with the checks isn't done. Now, in case you were wondering, you could actually buy a lot of actual big enterprise systems like this in the past. 
either they didn't even have reporting built in, you had to buy an other reporting tool and then create your reports, or they didn't have out-of-the-box reports. This used to be true of a surprising number of enterprise applications. Reporting was an add-on, and you had to write your own reports or pay a very expensive implementation partner to write them for you. So Salesforce has pretty much killed this type of system. And of course, if you don't have any CRM system, not only are you collecting the sales team's data manually, but you're creating the reports manually yourself in Excel. Not at all done, obviously. So let's talk about how what gets things smart means in the context of Salesforce. So I'm going to say it's really the flip side. It's the data collection side. I mean, I think there's lots of ways you can talk about this mental model in terms of lots of different enterprise software. This is one way, of course. So giving the sales team a place to put their sales data is a great benefit. But it's a much less important benefit than the sales forecast itself, except, of course, for the fundamental fact that the sales forecast can only be as good as the data that goes into it. So, of course, Salesforce provides a place to put that data. But the way it gets things smart is twofold. First of all, it knows which data to collect, what's important, what the template should be for the salespeople entering their information. And this means that the right data, the data needed for a good sales forecast, will be collected. But second, it's not just about the quality of the data, but the quantity, so to speak, meaning you have to get the data from every salesperson, the good performers, the great performers, and the poor performers. So Salesforce puts a lot of effort into making sure the salespeople enter their data. How do they do that? By making it as easy as, to use as possible, by templating the data, by giving good defaults, by making their system available remotely and on mobile devices, and so on. So I would argue that Salesforce.com is an example of enterprise software that's done and gets things smart. If you install it, suddenly you have a good sales forecast report, or not install it, if you buy it, you don't install Salesforce because it's a SaaS product. But if you, if you become a Salesforce customer, you have a good sales forecast based on their knowledge of what a good sales forecast looks like, and you have an infrastructure that helps you get what you need to put into that forecast. So Salesforce not only came up with a new container, so in that sense, it's kind of like Craigslist, right? It's, it's taking something that used to be done on paper or in Excel spreadsheets and putting it into a system. But that's kind of the least of what it did. It also included knowledge and smarts and it was already done for you. What else can I say about done and gets things smart? Well, obviously it applies to people. That was Steve Yegi's original point in the original article. I can recommend a bunch of his other articles. They're all pretty old at this point, but they're all still true, just like Shakespeare is still true. Um, yes, I just compared Steve Yegi to Shakespeare. Maybe that's audacious. I don't know. I love, I love his writing. They've been as influential on me, let's say, in my work as Hamlet or as you like it have been. So there's that. They're great fun. They're enjoyable. And you'll definitely learn some things. So the first thing I'd recommend, go read those articles. Again, links in the show notes. They're great and fun. As I say, enjoyable. You'll learn some things. Point number two, I'd recommend thinking about how is your product done and gets things smart. And then you start to ask additional questions. How can you make it more done? How can you make it more gets things smart? Customers really love this stuff, right? These are delighters because they're coming to you as the expert. They see you as the solution to their problem, not the means to a solution, but the solution itself. And that means done. This episode is also an example of a very powerful kind of meta mental model, which is that ideas from different domains about different things, in this case about hiring software developers and how you refactor code, 
can give us some powerful insights into how to make our products better. Part of your meta job as a product manager is to keep your eye out for those outside ideas. So I hope this was interesting for you, this discussion about these old <laughs> articles that really were influential, as I say, that were really were influential for me back when I was starting as a product manager. Uh, they're still really enjoyable to read. I recommend them. I reread them every couple years or so. And I, I'm always looking for new articles by Steve Yegi. He's written a few in the last few years, and that's always fun. Now, to change topics slightly, it is the new year. This is the first episode of the new year, and sometimes in the new year, we start thinking about new things. And you might be thinking about, oh, I'm going to go out and try to find a new job in the new year. Something a lot of people find, this is the time you start to think about it. Now, if this is you, you should definitely take my Tell Your Story online class. There's three great reasons to do it now. First of all, it's really good. It's a good class. It tells you how to take the things that you've accomplished in your career so far, even if you have never had a product management job, and turn those accomplishments into really good stories that you can use in job interviews, that you can use in your resume, and that you can use to talk about yourself. Now, for a limited time, second good reason, it's actually free. Its regular price is $49.99, but for the first 50 podcast listeners who sign up, I'm discounting the price by 100%, so it's a great time to get in on it. And finally, the tools that you learn to use to tell your own stories, which will definitely help you get that next job and differentiate you from other candidates, those same skills, the structure, the tips, the questions you ask to find good, the good story material, are totally applicable to all the times you need to tell stories as a product manager or a product marketer or a founder. Whether you're pitching for new funding or trying to convince a prospect to become a customer or handling sales objections, the storytelling you learn in this course will be directly applicable. So you might be wondering, how do you get to this fantastic course? You go to alltheresponsibility.com slash stories, and that will take you to the page where you can sign up. And I really hope you check it out. You can also find the link to that on the show notes, which is, again, at alltheresponsibility.com slash 78. You can find links to all the articles I mentioned, a link, as I said, to the course, and you can find a comment box there to, if you want to talk to me about whether you thought this was a good episode or not, or maybe something else you'd like to hear on the podcast. No pressure, but I'd love to hear from you. That's it for today. This is Nels Davis. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.